0: Hey, and welcome to another episode of Spreading the Word. I'm your host, Paul Bisanti. This next recording is from a sermon given today, March 24th, 2018. I've titled it Enough. It's the first of a two-part series with that same title. The first aspect is focusing on God's grace given to us being sufficient for everything we need. Uh, It's in response to a passage in Corinthians, where Paul is rebutting against some accusations of his inability to meet the impressive standard that these super apostles are leveling against him. And I think it relates in a lot of ways to the lives we live as Christians and how we meet the calling of the Great Commission that Jesus gives us in the end of the Gospel of Matthew. So, uh, without further ado, here we go. Thanks. Morning, everyone. Good morning. (coughs) Packed heads today. So, uh, today, I'm starting a two-part series uh, called Enough. Um, Have you ever been assigned something at work or school? that seem way above your capabilities or way above your current ability to, to handle. Um, I, think of, I think of something at camp. Uh, when I volunteered to direct King Week, uh, I got to camp and I had a, a fairly sound understanding having cooked for <coughs> seven or eight years of how the kitchen was supposed to be run. I felt very capable of managing that aspect of team week. But I had no idea how to deal with counselors, no idea how to deal with campers, no idea how much planning would need to go into the activity side of things, no idea how to keep the schedule on track. And if I think about the single time I've come closest to having a full-fledged panic attack, It was right before the death hike. I felt like everything was spiraling out of my control and I had no ability to keep this hike on track from a schedule point of view, to keep everyone who's going off into the woods. I'd never actually done a death hike at that point and I had no idea what I was in for and it just felt like I was 10 feet underwater and incapable of dealing with what I was responsible for and whether it's at camp or whether it's at work or whether it's with family or school or what have you we all face these situations that we're, were placed this task in front of us that that seems too big or or too complicated or or too uh requiring of a set of skills that you don't feel you have and it makes me think about what we're called to do as a church it makes me think about the the great commission that jesus gave us that we're to go and create disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father the son of the holy spirit and to, to teach them all the things that jesus taught us and sometimes when you think about that that task can feel overwhelming and like maybe i don't have this skill set to I do i don't know what it what it means to go and make disciples of all nations. I don't I don't know all this stuff. I'm not capable. I don't have that, that knowledge. In Acts chapter two, we see that the church was dedicated to teaching, was dedicated to fellowship together, was dedicated to breaking bread and sharing meals, to prayer, to being one in everything they did in unity, to share all their possessions. They were common in praising God together their number was added to daily. And sometimes it feels so daunting, either because of my lack of knowledge or my lack of experience or some sort of feeling of inadequacy. Maybe I've been trapped in, in sinful behavior and I feel like I'm not the guy that should be doing this. I'm not the person who should be reaching out to people and getting them to come to church or teaching them about the gospel or, or sharing. You know this, this message of salvation with them sometimes my past failures at attempting to do this make me feel like I'm incapable of being successful in this great commission that Jesus tasked us with we read in 2 Corinthians starting in verse 6 Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says even if I should choose to boast I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so that no one will thank me more than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore i will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that christ's power may rest on me that is why for christ's sake i delight in weaknesses in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when i am weak he is strong This letter to the church in Corinth is based out of the context of, of Paul having continual uh, struggles with what they're being taught when he is away. There were many times when people came in and bad enough Paul to this church in Corinth and, and tried to lead them in a different direction than what Paul had. And his, his rebuttal here is, not to boast about why they should listen to him but to plead to their understanding that god's glory is perfectly displayed in weakness see one of the one of the accusations was that paul wasn't a very good speaker he wrote these great letters that were full of boldness and full of great exhortations but in purpose the accusation was that paul was not a good speaker, was not eloquent enough, was not powerful enough in his words and so Paul defers to God's glory as opposed to boasting in his own abilities you see, God doesn't want to get bogged down in whether or not I have enough knowledge or whether or not you have enough knowledge or we have a lack of experience or because of our past failures God doesn't get bogged down in that or dare I say, God doesn't even get bogged down in our sinfulness to stop His glory from being revealed. I wanted to look at a few examples of people we know from Scripture to show how God works through weakness. Think of Joseph. Think of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Greencoat. Uh, he was a son of Jacob. He was the youngest. Uh, he was also Jacob's favorite. I mean, that tells you an indication of the level of parenthood that, that Jacob has. There's, there's clearly fault in Jacob's relationship with Joseph. It creates this feeling of jealousy between Joseph and, and his other brothers. His other brothers conspire against him, throw him in a well and sell him into slavery, into Egypt. They lied to his dad about what had happened, that Judah, his brother Judah, his older brother Judah, came up with this idea of what will we gain if we just tell dad that, that he died? Let's also sell him. You don't have to kill him. Maybe it was some sort of guilt on his conscience, but he came up with this way to profit out of getting rid of his brother at the same time. Then Joseph ends up being a slave for Potiphar. Potiphar was an Egyptian official and and his wife starts seducing Joseph and Joseph resists and then as a result Potiphar ends up stealing his cloak as he runs off and he, Joseph gets thrown in jail and he's in jail and while he's there there are, there are two other servants in, in Pharaoh's household that, that come and they both have dreams and the first is the cupbearer. The cupbearer dreams of these three vines uh, that, that have grapes growing on them and he takes the grapes, and he squishes them into the chalice and hands it to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh drinks it. And Joseph says, well, this, I I can tell you what this means. The Lord has given me the ability to tell you what this dream means. And he says this, this dream means that in three days' time, you will have your head lifted up and restored to Pharaoh's household, and you will return to your position as his cupbearer. Now the other prisoner that was there was a breadmaker, a baker, and he was encouraged by this fact because he was having dreams too. And he said, My dream is that I have these these three baskets of bread on my head, and the birds keep eating at it, and and what what does that mean? So Joseph is like, in three days you will have your head lifted up, and you will be hanged on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh. And so three days passes, and the cupbearer. And the baker are called into Pharaoh's presence, and in front of the court, Pharaoh lifts up the cupbearer and restores him to his previous position, and he executes the bread maker, just as Joseph said would happen. Now as he was telling them what the meaning of the dreams, he said, remember me, so that I can be brought out of this unjust situation here, in prison. And the cupbearer does remember, albeit two years later, when he's reminded of it, when Pharaoh is talking about a dream he had. And he's like, oh yeah. Hey, by the way, this guy, this servant of of Potiphar, is in prison wrongly. And uh, he can interpret dreams. So Pharaoh's dream is that uh, there are seven sleek, fat cows coming out of the Nile. Then they're followed by seven lean and slender cows that come out and eat up these fat cows. And there's another one about seven good grains of wheat and seven bad grains of wheat. And Joseph is summoned before Pharaoh and describes that his dream means that there will be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt and that there will be seven years of famine directly following the years of plenty. So during those years of plenty, store up the wheat and store up provisions so that during the years of famine you will be taken care of. Pharaoh hearing this is immediately convinced that this is what he should do and he ends up appointing Joseph to a high position. Later on the brothers of Joseph are reunited to him, albeit surreptitiously. They come and they don't recognize who Joseph is and there's this big ordeal about him sneaking the gold that they brought to it's a time of famine, so they came to buy provisions for their family, and they do so, and then Joseph whispers to a servant, Hey, put their money back in their bags and they end up coming back. And eventually after many years they're restored in a relationship, but then their father Jacob passes away. And Joseph's words are very pointed, because his brothers are concerned that now that Jacob's out of the picture, that Joseph Will seek retribution. And Joseph's words are, You intended this for evil, but God designed it for good. You see, out of this evil and sinful situation came goodness to Joseph. The people of Israel were were provided for through Joseph. The entire nation of Israel came out of Jacob and Joseph and his brothers, and they were preserved out of this seemingly evil act. Another situation is Rahab the prostitute. The Israelites were promised an inheritance of, of a piece of land, and as they're going to seek it out, God gives instruction to Joshua to send out spies into the land to, to see what they can see about the land they're about to conquer. Now the thought is, if you're sending spies into the land, you're about to see some sort of tactical advantage. You're going to see the, the weakness in in the kingdom's, you know, fortifications, in, in their in their army, in, in what have you. But this wasn't what was happening. When the when the spies go in, they see Jericho, a city fortified, a, a huge wall, huge armies. They see the strength of the enemy in this situation. And so God is sending these these spies into the nation, not so that they can gain some advantage but so they can see the strength of their enemy. And as they're sneaking around trying to understand what it is they're about to undertake, they're about to get captured by the king's men. And so they end up finding uh, a house inside these walls uh, occupied by Rahab and her family. Rahab was a prostitute, she was coming from a, a very, the sort of life that you wouldn't think is a godly sort of life, but she says this to them. I know that the Lord has given you this land. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And she protects them. And she says, swear to me that you will show me kindness. So she was spared. The walls of Jericho fell down. We, Many of us know that story. There's a, a nice song about it for the kids too. But she was spared. And it says that Rahab and her family lived among the Israelites after that. Another example is Saul, or Paul, being a Pharisee, a Pharisee's Pharisee, uh, uh, circumcised on the eighth day, knew his law inside and out, was persecuting Christians, was holding the cloak of Stephen as he was being martyred for his faith in Christ. He had every reason to be hated by the church. He had every reason to be shunned by the church and never welcomed in, but we ultimately see that he becomes one of the most powerful leaders in terms of what he's able to encourage the churches to do. One of the most dedicated workers for Christ. I think it's interesting when you look at the lineage of Christ in Matthew, in the first chapter of Matthew, you see Judah who was one of Joseph's brothers, responsible for these terrible atrocities done to Joseph. And you also find Rahab in there. When I saw that the first time, I was shocked. Rahab the prostitute is in the lineage of Christ. So here you have this Messiah, this king, the salvation of the world, coming from these situations that are sinful and broken and terrible. And look at what's accomplished. Look at the cross. Even at the cross, we see that Jesus' closest and dearest friends abandoned him. We see that false witnesses are brought in to slander and, and falsely accuse Jesus of, of crimes. We, we see that Jesus gets shuffled between Pilate and Herod, and neither one of them really want to make a judgment on the case. He's not that important enough to them. They just want to quell this little uprising in this podunk town at the edge of the Roman Empire the the soldiers passed with executing him mock him and spit on him and, and put a, a crown of thorns on him and even the robbers that are going through the exact same fate as him mock and heap insults on him you have the king of the world coming in in this shameful act being crucified next to two vicious, violent insurrectionists. And in the middle is Jesus. There's no better example of weakness displaying God's glory than at the cross. I mean, Jesus is so impoverished as a person that he doesn't even have a burial plot. They put him in Joseph's tomb. Uh, We see that at the very moment that sin and death appear to be victorious is the same very moment that God's power is displayed more clearly and more effectively than any other time in history how much less impressive could a display of our king and savior be than what he went through? It's in this meek, lowly, and humiliating experience that God accomplishes his greatest victory. So if we think about Joseph, and we think about Rahab, and we think about Saul and Paul, uh, and we think about what was accomplished through Jesus at the cross, If God can work through these imperfect people and these imperfect situations to accomplish such amazing things, why couldn't he do that same thing through us, through what we are dealing with, through the the sin that we have in our lives, through the uh, lack of experience, the lack of wisdom? The calling to go and make disciples of all nations still applies to us. Jesus's words were, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them the things that I have taught you. His words were not, go and get a degree in theology, learn Greek, become an expert at eschatology, and become confident and proficient as a public speaker. The ability for us to spread the the gospel, to spread the word of God, is not reliant on how effectively we can stand up in front of people and, and speak eloquently and deliver convincing arguments. The power is in God's word. The power is in the hope that we have. We all have this hope. We all have this faith. We all have this belief that what Jesus came to do saves us from our sins. That's all we need. We just need to share that. It is in our weakness, specifically, that God's glory is on greatest display. It is in the fact that he is using a broken and sinful person or persons to accomplish his will here on earth that glorifies God. We're not out here to generate you know, uh, a following because we're such special people. We're not out here to convince people in the world that we're holy because we're Christians. No, we are just as prone to struggling with sin as anyone in the world. We are just as prone to these weaknesses as anyone in the world. And it's in those weaknesses that God's grace is enough. God's word is enough. The sacrifice of Jesus for our sins is enough. It is in our meekness and our lowliness that we can most readily give glory to God for what he's done in our lives. Thanks for tuning in today. The message really wanted to focus on encouraging us not to feel incapable of doing God's work. There's too much at stake. There's too much worth fighting for in bringing the message of hope and forgiveness to people to allow our own feelings of inadequacy stop us from reaching out. Paul could have used all sorts of clever arguments about his experience and his knowledge and his revelation from God to do the things he was doing for the church in Corinth, but instead he boasted about his weakness. And I think that's there for a purpose, and I think the the stories we talked about with Joseph and Rahab and and Saul all have reasons to give us even more hope. Our sin, our failures aren't any reason to not share the hope we have in Jesus, it's all the more reason to share why what he did for us is so amazing. So if you're hearing this today and you have that hope and that salvation found in Jesus, then don't feel stressed out about it, just go and share it with someone. If it's as meaningful to you as it is to me, then go share it with someone. And if you've never come into a saving relationship with Christ, then reach out to someone, reach out to us, reach out to a local church and and find out what this whole wonderful mystery is about and uh, spend some time in the Word. Thank you so much for tuning in. I pray that the Lord will be with you through this next week and we'll have another message continuing this sermon series called Enough next week.